Good morning, everybody. Welcome to church. Ah, oh, you made it. You made it. What everyone that calm, collected, good-looking person. Yeah, we all know what was behind the scenes, the craziness just to get here. So well done. Do me a favor, and before you get too comfortable, just turn and greet somebody. Make someone feel welcome. Introduce yourself. think I need notes. Okay, number one, really cool thing, just a couple, uh, just this last Tuesday, I was at the women's ministry, and you may not know this, but we have an amazing women's ministry led by just an absolutely fantastic team. Uh, 350 women gather on Tuesdays, do we have the slide for that? Uh, For teaching of God's word, fellowship, relationship building, and I got to sit in. I just came in to pop in there. They're going through this series called Summits of the Soul. They're looking at these different sort of using these geographic moments where people encounter God up on the mountaintop in some way, shape, or form and stringing together this series about what we learn from God as we meet him on the mountaintop. I just popped in just to, for a quick minute and I couldn't leave. I was so riveted by Wendy Hinman's teaching. So you got to check it out if you've never been, ladies. Um, this Tuesday, jump on in and join these guys. Don't they look like they're having fun? Come on, come on. Those guys, love it. Uh, and secondly, a couple of weeks ago, we had a spontaneous gathering of the men in our church. 200 guys showed up at the chapel to pray. You know that God is on the move when 200 men show up to pray. So uh, <laughs> that is both a praise to God and uh, just a a poking of fun at the men. But we had a great time. We were, we met for an hour and I feel like God multiplied the time. We're going to meet again, get this, put it in your calendars, March 6th on a Monday. Now we scheduled it to be at 8 p.m. to 9 p.m. so that look, you got young kids, you can put the kids down. We want this to be a blessing for your wives as much as for yourself. Uh, So uh, show up 8 p.m. March 6th, Monday night. We're going to continue and just, I think, just discover what God's doing among us. So I'd love to invite all the guys to come on out. With that being said, do you see my shirt? You got it? Are you catching the vibe? I don't know if you noticed, but uh, we got some Palm Sunday action going on. So I say, you know, winter was nice and all, but let's let the spring come. Come on now, spring. So I am giving a nudge to the spring to come on and show up. But we are starting, we're having Palm Sunday today. Normally it's much closer to Easter, but because the gospel of Mark, which we're studying, gets to Palm Sunday so soon, we're just on track with Mark. And what it does show us though about Mark's gospel is we still have six chapters left in the gospel of Mark. So what that means is one third of Mark's storyline focuses on Jesus in Jerusalem. That's 30% of his gospel. That's more than any other gospel spends with Jesus here. And so this is the beginning of a really incredibly earth-shaking, world-changing moment when Jesus comes to Jerusalem. And I want to just uh, map it out for you as we go into the story so you get some context. We started, let's go to the map real quick. You might have to jump ahead the slides. 
And uh, we started this series with Jesus on Mount Hermon at the Transfiguration, right? At Mark 9, chapter, or chapter 9, verse 1. Remember the Transfiguration? Go in the dark, Jesus, right? And then he's ma- making his way all the way down south from that moment when Peter confessed, you are the Christ. Jesus said, okay, now are you ready to find out what kind of Messiah I am? And he's making the journey all the way to Jerusalem. And here we are. He comes to Jericho, and then he gets right here to Bethany and to Bethphage, and he's going to make his way into Jerusalem right now. So we have been waiting for this moment, Jesus and his arrival in Jerusalem, and the title of the message is Hurricane Jesus. So buckle your seatbelts, my friends. Let's go to the reading of God's Word, and if you are so inclined, will you join me to stand in standing for the reading of God's Word? If you prefer to be seated, please do so. Mark chapter 11, verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you. Just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Now, right here, a colt could be a baby horse or a young horse. Not Sorry, not baby, but a young horse or, or a donkey. And he says, Untie it and bring it here. Now get this. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. Now get this, verse 4, when they went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. Now, they are finding everything Jesus, just as Jesus said it would be. All the gospel accounts record the way that Jesus gets the colt. We'll talk about why that's so important. Uh, they went and found the colt outside the street, tied at a doorway, and as they untied it, some people standing there asked, why are you what are you doing untying that colt? And so they answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. And when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Now, many people, just picture thousands of people, thousands of people, that's the crowd size around Jesus, spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. They are rolling out the red carpet, Everyone senses the hype, the expectation, and the anticipation of this moment. This is a moment these people have been waiting for for hundreds of years. And the moment has finally come. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. And he looked around at everything. But since it was already late, get this, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Now, the next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. And when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. And then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. So Jesus is a little hangry here, and it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse, because watch what happens. And his disciples heard him say it, and on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Ever want to do that when you get to a long line? I love going to taco stand. I love their tacos. You get there, and the line is like a quarter of a mile. Don't you just want to flip some tables? 
And, uh, he, but there's a different thing going on here for Jesus. And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And he taught them and he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. This is God's word for us today. Come on, let's just take a moment and pray. God, open our eyes and our ears to what you're saying to us today. There is something so important for us to hear. We pray, give us receptive hearts. Give us understanding minds to what you're saying and showing us. We love you. I thank you for everyone that's here this morning that doesn't normally come to church or was invited by a friend or a family. We pray they would feel your welcome and your love. In Jesus' name, amen. What an amazing moment. Go ahead and grab a seat. Uh, so you come in and walk, you come in, you're coming to church maybe for the first time and catching Jesus, you know, in a riot, just, just throwing a huge, huge storm. Hence this, her, the message title, Hurricane Jesus. Um, I want to make sure we understand the context of this whole scene so you can kind of picture it. Let's go back to the images of the temple. Now, we saw the map. Here we are. Here's Jesus riding up into Bethany and Bethphage. Now, you see this amount of olives. These two towns, they sit up on an elevated place called the Mount of Olives that sits 200 feet at least above Jerusalem. So when he gets to Bethphage, which is where he gets the cult, he's able to kind of look out from that elevated point out over Jerusalem. He's above it. And he's making his descent down the steep grade past the Garden of Gethsemane. And when he enters Jerusalem, which is all of this stuff right here. Let's go back one. Go oh, the other way. Yeah, right here. This is all Jerusalem, but um, right here. But within it is the temple right here. Here's Jerusalem. Here's the temple. And he enters Jerusalem through the east gate through the temple itself. And so when Jesus goes to Jerusalem, he goes right into the heart of the matter. Let's go to the next slide. And uh, here's a little layout of the temple. We're going to be here for the next six chapters. So it's important that you get a picture of we, where we are. Most of what Jesus is going to talk about between now and chapter 16, where he's crucified, is about the temple. And because the temple represents the heart of the people and how they understand what it means to relate to God and to be his people. And you can see here all the commotion that we see him doing, he's flipping tables, is here in the Gentile court. This is a vast space, a vast piazza type space that can hold thousands and hundreds of thousands of people. And I'll show you another picture in a minute. Here is the court of the Gentiles. This is where anybody who is not a Jew, who is not a believer, can come. And if they want to know who God is, they can come into this space and be welcome. But it's been overrun. This is the court of the women. Here's the court of the circumcised men. Here's the holy place. Let's go to the next slide. And uh, here is the temple again, another model. Here's the gate, the eastern gate. Here's that wall. Here is the court of the Gentiles. It, look at how big it is. Uh, it, it can, there's one, uh, this, this facility is the largest enclosed sacred site in the entire world. It's 35 acres. It's a 500 by 350 structure. This certainly would have been one of the seven wonders of the world. Um, it is the largest in the world like it in the Roman Empire, nothing like it anywhere. It can hold just 
an incalculable number of people. It's just massive. You know, Jesus is in that wide open space. And to give you a sense of how crowded it can get, um, they have historical records of over 250,000 lambs being brought into that space, to be brought into the temple to be sacrificed. There's just hundreds of thousands of people, lots of commotion. You know, uh, I don't know, think of like a, a concert or something, just filling an arena, but multiply that by 10. Think of the largest concert you've ever been to or seen and multiply that manyfold. This is the temple. This is where Jesus is. And he comes at the height of its energy and, and presence, and he does what he does in this moment. Now, here we're going to watch how Mark, through this passage, unfolds what Jesus is doing here in three movements. And in those three movements, Paul or Mark is going to take us into a deeper and deeper understanding of Jesus's leadership in our life, to understand who Jesus is what it means to follow him, and the way the cross defines himself and his leadership, but also the lives of those who choose to follow him. If you're going to follow Jesus, this moment helps unfold what it means for us to carry our cross as well. So here we are. The first movement is when he rides in on the colt in verses 1 to 11, and then we're going to look at the prophesying through the fig tree, that funny, hangry moment with the tree that has no food for him in verses 12 to 14, and then the third movement, the overturning of the money tables. And each one is going to get deeper, more profound, and more challenging. So are we ready for this? Let's just uh, buckle your seatbelts, everybody. We are in for a ride. Let's start with the first movement, okay? The very beginning, it starts in verse 3, and it says this, if anyone asks you, why are you, are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. So this is the first part where Jesus rides in on a colt, on this donkey. And it's interesting, before you get to the fact that he does that, is how he gets it, because every gospel writer wants you to know how he got it. Okay, and the way that he got it was not the way most people would get it. He didn't buy it and own it. Whenever I walk people um, at my house, I have a trail by my house. Whenever people see my home, they're always a little bit like, uh, whoa, you live here? But as a friend of mine calls it, um, Aslan's house, I had to explain to them, I didn't get into this house by my paycheck and by saving him. I got in here by a crazy God story. God did something miraculous. I had this FedEx driver roll up to our house. My wife and I were on the balcony overlooking the pat front patio, having a little date moment. And she runs up and we say hi to her and we kind of startle her. She drops off the package. She's leaving. And then she goes, can I ask you a personal question? And I'm like, uh, yeah, sure, okay. What's up? And she's like, um, what do you do for a living? And I go, huh. And she's like, how did you get here? And I go, ah, I see. And I go, well, my story is a little weird. Um, I'm not a CEO or a president of any company, like some of my neighbors. Uh, I'm a pastor. And I didn't get in here on my paycheck. I got in here on prayer. And she's like, oh. And she just paused. And I said, yeah, I'd be happy to share more with you. Do you want to know more? And she's like, well, I just want to know how to get successful in life. And nobody seems to want to share their secrets with me. Yeah, so I've got a friend of mine who's going to meet with her to start talking about her faith and her journey as a businesswoman with this young woman. And what I think is so important is the way that Jesus gets in here is not through conventional means. He gets here because he's trusting his father for everything that he needs. Because get this, 
Jesus wants his disciples to know everything that is about to happen, the craziness that is about to be unleashed, his death on the cross, all of it, he knows what's coming. He's already got a plan. He's in control. And he wants us to understand that because when, he, when they go into that town, they find everything just as he said it would be. We see that even more when he rides uh, in on a donkey. Now, that is an important thing. It, it's an intentional act. Jesus is not tired or lazy. It symbolizes something, okay? Uh, look at this. In Zechariah 9.9, it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your what? Your king comes to you, righteous, victorious. But get this, lowly. In other words, humble riding on a donkey, on a colt. There it is, the foal of a donkey. This is, a, this is like hundreds of years old. This is a prophetic word about the coming Messiah. And Jesus, by riding in on the donkey, is signaling the Messiah, your king, is here. And the people, they get it. They get it because they start shouting, Hosanna. And what do they say? Verse 10, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. And they're throwing their cloaks. They're throwing the palm branches down. It's like rolling out the red carpet. This is the moment they've been waiting for. This is the moment of anticipation and expectation. Okay, if you want a sense of the energy, think of the moment at a wedding when the music starts up and the doors at the back of the church open, you know, and the bride and her father begin to walk down. This is the moment where God is coming to his people to show them what it really means to be in relationship with them and to know him personally. When he enters the temple, we should feel the hype and the energy. I shared one time about being at a Stanford-Berkeley game when uh, Cal won that game, because it's so rough for them to win, they stormed the field and tore down the goalposts, all right, and carried it on their shoulders into the, into the town. It has that kind of energy. And what's so important about this moment is the way that Mark portrays Jesus. How would you describe Jesus at this moment? All the hype, all the energy, all the praise, and he walks into Jerusalem, and what does he do? He walks into the temple, and what does he do? Do you remember? Watch, listen, you ready for it? He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out and left. It's a little bit anticlimactic. And what's so fascinating about this moment here is it communicates the calmness of Jesus in the midst of a storm. It's a picture of what it looks like to allow Jesus to be the leader of our life in turbulent times. Picture the turbulence of the moment. There is the turbulence of, every, of the crowd's praise and the plotting religious leaders. On the one hand, you've got the crowd praising Jesus, stoking up the moment, and there's energy that Jesus has come, and he's going to bring vengeance and deliverance from the Romans. And on the flip side of all the praise of the crowd are the plotting religious leaders who are looking to kill Jesus and take his life. And it represents at the center of this tumult and turbulent moment, the calm 
grounded, anchoring presence of Jesus in our life. Have you ever had a moment that was turbulent and just surprised you and blindsided you and left you reeling with knowing how to respond? Have you ever had a moment where because you were being praised and getting caught up in your success, you started to lose touch with God in your life? Or maybe because of some fear or concern and some perceived threat, you began to become anxious and worried and began to lose touch with God's presence and his calming promise to be with us. Have you ever been in either of these kind of places in your life? Amidst the praise and the plotting, Jesus is the calming presence of our life that anchors us. Let me give you an example um, of different examples of things that can cause turbulence. I had a father just today tell me a turbulent moment can be a son calling you from college telling you, oh, I moved out of my dorm. Oh, you moved out? Not, I'm going to move out. I might move out. Can I, can I move out? I did move out. But what made it even more turbulent was where he was moving to. He was moving, get this, to live in an igloo that he had built on the eighth hole of a golf course. <laughs> now... That right there is going to throw you as a father into a bit of turbulent reactivity. Are you proud of your kid for being so industrious and creative and independent-minded, or are you panicking? What are you doing? Or it can be a moment like walking on a double date with your friend and your dates into a bowling alley late one night to have a car pull up and start to shout obscenities to your date and for it to get so bad that you decide I'm going to stop and I stopped in this moment and told my friends go ahead and as five guys got out of the car I don't know why they didn't go after the days they just came after me I didn't think much about this whole plan at, at past that point but there I was just standing there and these guys got out of the car and pushing started threatening and that one moment the guy just looks at me and he says I'm going to shoot you what do you think about that and he tells his buddy, grab my gun. And I can see in the guy's eyes that he's high on something. His eyes are bloodshot. And he's got that kind of not total grounded look in his face. And I could feel my fist clench and the uncertainty and the fear just taking a hold of me. And this is Ryan when he's still a relatively new believer. And rather than what I usually do in other moments, in that moment, I just paused and I just said, Jesus, what do you want me to do here? And I felt this calming presence in that moment. Can you think of a place in your life that feels turbulent? It could be in your life personally. You've been surprised. Things are going super well, or maybe things are threatening. But then there are moments for us as a church where we are going through the turbulent times of our culture and we can feel threatened as a church. And what's going on in this moment is so important for us because whether it's praise or plots, we can get carried away in our desire for control over situations or feeling threatened by what we see going on around us. And Jesus here is a guide for us on how to remain calm and grounded so we are in tune with God's purposes, not our own. False religion always wants to offer us and tempt us with control over our world so we feel bigger and safer. That is the temptation of false religion. And that's what we're going to find is going on at the temple. But for Jesus, he's always inviting us into this third option. We don't have to run in fear, but we don't have to also 
be fighting in the way of the world. The way of Jesus leads us to surrender control to Jesus and to stay on purpose with the Father. And that's what he wants to invite us to. The disciples are not in control, and neither are you. But he is in control. And he knows what's right around the corner in your life. And he's got you. Now, that takes us to the second movement, and this is crucial. In the second movement, Jesus prophesies through the fig tree. I want to read this to you. In verse 14, Jesus, it says in verse 12, is hungry. And in that hunger, he goes to this fig tree. Now, it's puzzling because he goes to the fig tree. It's not the season for the figs. And when he doesn't find any figs, it's like he throws a hangry tantrum and curses the fig tree. What is Jesus doing here? Now, what's important to know is that it's not the season for ripe figs. Can you say ripe with me? Ripe. Now, you got to hear that because it is the season for unripe figs. And I don't know, does anybody here love an unripe mango? Some people love unripe and some people love them orange and some people like them green. Any any unripe mango lovers here? Yeah, come on now, come on. Yeah, bro, come on, own it. I don't know, there there are always these people here like them unripe. Now, people loved unripe figs and they could eat them. And there are none of those unripe figs. They're called pajim on this tree. It's fruitless. And this moment is actually not a moment of personal outrage, it's a prophetic action. You know that because of this, watch. The way that Mark tells the story, look at this, go to the next one. It's structured, yeah, the next slide, the next, yeah, there we go. It's structured in what Mark calls, like a, it's called a sandwich. It's like where Mark does a prophetic action, something happens, and then he follows up with like a bookend. So we have right now the cursing of the fig tree, and then Jesus cleanses the temple, and then next week we'll look at when Jesus and the disciples come back to the tree, guess what they find? It's withered at the root. So because it's structured like this, it's the way that Jesus, and it's the way that the Bible is telling us something, that this fig tree is interpreting what Jesus is doing in the temple because Jesus is not walking in there losing his temper and out of his mind. Jesus is doing deliberate, intentional action that is meant to communicate and reveal the heart of God to us. And so that brings clarity. Because in this moment, Jesus is bringing clarity that the people of God have lost sight of what God cares about and have substituted what they care about with what God cares about. Does that make sense? Has that ever happened in your life? Ever have a moment where what God cares about is like the last thing on your mind? You're like, I don't know. I'm just consumed with what I need and what I want. That's how I felt that night at the the bowling alley. This guy has got me cornered, and all I want to do is punch him straight in the face and run my guts out. I want to just hit him as hard as I can and run. That's my old way, because what I want is to feel safe and secure. But there was something in this moment, I can't even tell you I did it on purpose, but where I just paused, and I said, God, or actually specifically Jesus, what do you want to do right now? And that opens up a whole other possibility. Let's know what Tim Keller says about this moment. The tree became a perfect metaphor for those claiming to be God's people but who do not bear fruit. They're not bearing the fruit of what God cares about. They're bearing the fruit of their own personal passions. And God's passion has been crowded out. Now, that takes us to the heart of our passage today. Here we go. This is the hardest part. But Jesus is bringing clarity that there's something wrong. The way things have been going, the status quo, 
is not right with God. And that takes us to the third movement. Let's go to the next one. This is the moment where Jesus overturns the table. He's coming in calm. Jesus is in control. Jesus has clarity about what everybody takes for granted. Is this the way things should be? And he's saying, no, this is not the way it should be. It is so far off God's desire and plan. And he communicates that right here. Verse, let's look at the passage. I think I have it up here. Yeah, here it is. And it says, and as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, we're getting to one of the most crucial teachings that Jesus gives in Mark, and I want to help you understand it. Check this out. Number one thing we get from this that Jesus is saying is, he's saying, this is my house. Now, that right there is kind of a radical thing. Now, imagine someone walking into your house, into your room, just the way you set it up, and telling you you didn't do it right, and on their own initiative, removing everything. Can you imagine? I just walk up here and go, you know, Brian, you don't know where the guitar goes, bro. It doesn't go here. It goes over here. You know, and I start moving stuff around on the worship band. I mean, Ryan can't even sing on key. What <laughs> business is that guy doing moving my guitar around? Hey. Yeah, hey, oh, dude. <laughs> you actually really surprised me there. <laughs> or imagine someone comes into your house and they grab your painting off the wall or where your couch is and like, it doesn't go here, it goes over here. How would you describe that person? I mean, seriously, I want you to know, just shout it out. How would you describe that person? Rude, bold, what? Wait, wait, what? Controlling, invasive, arrogant, inappropriate was the one from this morning too. So like, yeah, here we go. Jesus being inappropriate. Let's talk about that. Inappropriate Jesus, hurricane Jesus, coming in and assuming authority over things that nobody else has given him access to or knows he has the right to. He comes into our life sometimes like this, doesn't he? He comes in calm, humble, into our life, forgiving, loving. But listen, you've got to understand something about Jesus if you're going to follow him. If you're going to follow him, he is going to move your furniture. Amen. He is going to assume the right to talk to you about the things that are the most dear and personal in your life, the things that are the most sacred so that he can realign those things that are so sacred to us so that they are fulfilling God's purpose in our life. Because sometimes our passions have replaced God's passions and our concerns have replaced God's concerns. And God sometimes needs to realign the way that we hold the sacred gifts in our life, the gift of choice, the gift of our sexual identity, the gift of our intimate relationships with family and friends, the gift of, of financial responsibility and stewardship, the gift of our presence, our capacity to embrace others, the privilege of being in the family of God. He comes into our life and he starts to assume the right to talk to us about how these things fit in our life and where they belong. Have you ever had a moment like that with Jesus? Sitting at that bowling alley that night, the first thing that I heard God tell me 
when I asked Jesus, what do you want to do? He told me, do not hit that guy. While he's pushing me, while he's threatening me, and I'll tell you, everything in me wanted to hit him. Ah, oh, nosy Jesus, inappropriate Jesus. This is my house, he claims. Number two, he's concerned about all nations because he says this is meant to be a place of prayer for all nations. It is concern. His concern is not just for us, but for all the nations and for all the people. Now, that's important. And then thirdly, his concern is that they have replaced the place where the nations would encounter the presence of God, and they have made it a place of profit at the expense of God's presence. They have turned the place that was meant to be a place of encounter with God's presence into a place of profit-making. He's not concerned about profit-making, but he's concerned that they have put it in the place where people are meant to encounter God. And there's no more room in this place for the world to come and meet God. Now it's a place where the people who have that access and that responsibility can just make more money off those people. So here we go. My house, his concern for all nations, and the profiteering. Here we are with Jesus. Now this is so important because when he says my house will be called the house of prayer for all nations, go to the next slide, he's quoting Isaiah 56. And when he quotes Isaiah 56, if you read the whole context, it's God at length. Read it. Read it. The first verse in chapter 56 is keep justice. And the rest of it is God explaining his desire, his passion, his concern that the people of God are known by their commitment and demonstration of justice to the foreigner, the immigrant, the widows, and the orphans. That's the whole chapter. Are you showing, and he's quoting from that, and watch, if we go to De 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 Jeremiah 7, that one is God, not just saying this is what I care about, but now in Jeremiah 7, when he says you den of robbers, Jeremiah is calling out the people of God because they are not living according to what God cares about. They have replaced God's care of justice for the foreigner with their own concerns for their profit and their own personal security and comfort. Do you see what I'm talking about? I'll, I'll give you a taste. Just so you know, I'm not making this up. Listen, Jeremiah 7, just take a gander. He says, reform your ways. Do not say and trust in, oh, this is the temple, the tradition, ritual. He goes, but if you do not oppress the foreigner, if you will stop oppressing the fatherless or the widow and do not shed innocent blood, then I will let you live in my house my house. <laughs> this is Jesus's concern for justice, that where the nations are meant to gather to encounter God, where the temple was meant to be a place where outsiders become insiders, the people had, of God had lost sight of that and had used their religion for their own personal security, comfort, at the expense of those they were meant to bring in and near to God. Now, I'm talking about justice here. I know right at this moment, some of you are getting worried. Because when we talk about justice, the first thing that comes to our mind is the ways in which the biblical, the robust, the dynamic, the 2,000, no, multi-thousand year history of biblical vision for justice has gotten conflated and confused with sort of the politically correct, woke, muddled waters of justice of our secular culture. And those things have gotten confused. And so when I talk about justice, 
I think we get, we get concerned. And people want to meet with me because they want to know, hey, what are you talking about? And rightly so. Because in today's culture, there's confusion. And partly because maybe for some of us, we're not clear about how the Bible speaks of justice so deeply and so profoundly and so robustly, bringing clarity about the value and dignity of all human life. All humans create equally. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And that the place of God's people is to demonstrate God's heart of justice to a world that has lost sense of justice because it doesn't understand that all human beings are made in God's image. And that is what Jesus is addressing. At the heart of it, the temple was meant to be where outsiders can become insiders with God. And I don't know about you, but we can get threatened by what we see happening in culture, and it can cause us to lose sight of biblical justice because we see things encroaching on the church and values from culture that confuse us and can get us into an embattled position that we need to protect ourselves. but it becomes at the expense of being who we're really called to be. We are called to be servants and ambassadors to bring the outsider in, even at risk of ourself. And so moments in culture that threaten us can be moments around the whole racial conversation, or it can be like what's happening in Santee with the YMCA where you have a trans person going into the women's locker room with a male body, but inside feels like a woman, and you have a young woman who stumbles upon this person and freaks out and goes and hides in the bathroom. I don't know about you, but I see that kind of a moment, and I feel torn. I feel both terrible compassion for that trans person, that yearning for belonging, but I also feel conviction that that's not the teaching of Scripture. And I think if my daughter were in there, I feel protective of that as well. And it's the tension between not compromising biblical conviction out of fear of appearing to be prejudicial or bigot, but at the same time, being able to have compassion for the outsider, the people who are just trying to find a way to get to belong to society, and are using methods that are chipping away at our sense of control. Think about the Jews at this time. When Jesus clears the court of the Gentiles, they are a people who are fighting to find independence from a Roman foreign power over their people that has crowded out their culture. They feel the imminent threat of a foreign culture on them, and Jesus who was supposed to come in and free Israel from the foreigner actually makes room for the foreigner and how challenging that must have felt to them. And yet for us as the people of God, we've got to learn how to navigate these waters of conviction with compassion. Not compromising biblical vision, but at the same time, holding out the care and the love of Christ for the outsider to bring people in. Because what can crowd them out are our fears, our doubts, the fear of the loss of control, the turbulent times that we're living in. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever looked around at culture and just felt like you don't fit anymore? Or maybe you feel like you look at the church and you feel, do I fit here? As a pastor, I look at our church and I see both of you in the room. I see some of you that have come to me going, I don't know if I always see the church standing for justice in the way that I see in Scripture because they're so afraid of the secular view of justice. And then I see other people going, why aren't you talking out and stepping out and speaking louder against the encroachment of culture on church and our values? 
And how do we stand at the intersection of this place with the conviction, the vision, and the compassion of Christ? That's what Jesus is offering to us. And what's so amazing in this moment is the way that Jesus steps into this space. Jesus has been talking to us all along about how the first will be last and the last will be first. I want to show you one slide real quick. Check this out. Uh, can I go to the temple image? Do you, you know how Jesus has been talking about the first will be last and the last will be first? Do you guys, can I get a nod? Do you guys remember that? At the temple, the furthest out from the presence of God are the Gentiles. Do you see that? The next is the court of the women. You with me? The next is the court of the men, circumcised men. Do you see what I'm talking about? Does that ring a bell? You kind of sense a little bit of like sort of uh, gender politics and race politics going on here? You with me? Are you feeling it? You feeling uncomfortable? Take a deep breath. <sighs> take a deep breath. Take a deep breath. Yeah, but maybe you feel the, the intensity of what Jesus is doing here in this moment. He's stepping into that. Now watch. The people of God here had gotten it backwards. They were using this as a, they had turned it into a, a structure of hierarchy. And they had used the space for the Gentiles to become a place of profiteering. What Jesus is doing when he says, let the first become last. Let the first, who's first? The men. Let the first become last. And what does that mean in Jesus? Does that mean degrade your value, lose your worth, go around and tell yourself you're bad? No. Listen to what Jesus says. See if you can pick up on it. Mark 10, 44. Instead, Mark 10, 44, whoever wants to be great or first among you must be what? A servant to be last, right? For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When Jesus is flipping the tables over, what he's signaling is the temple is no longer the place to encounter God because he is about to offer his life as a sacrifice so that now people will find the presence of God by coming to him. And those who are privileged with being closest to him are tasked to make themselves last, to become servants to restore the purpose and the passion of God, which is what? To make the outsider an insider. And in the process of making outsiders insiders, get this, the irony, Jesus becomes the ultimate outsider. And he is cast out of the walls of the temple and he is gonna be crucified so that the outcasts can once again find their way to God. I want to invite the band to come on out. As the band comes out, there's something so profound in this narrative that God would come and in an effort to bring the outcast in, had to become an outcast himself among his own people. His own people mistook him as an outsider in his purpose and his passion to bring the outsider in. Listen to these words as we go into this song. Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is the great gospel reversal where Jesus is cast out 
so that we could be brought in. Isn't that good news? The great leveling. We are all outcasts with God. And the role of the people of God in everything that we do and say is to communicate the grace of God for the outsider. Not to compromise our conviction about holiness, but to demonstrate the holiness of God in reaching out to the outsider and bringing them into the holiness and the goodness of God's life. Let's take a moment and go into this song. We're going to go into communion after this. So if you have your elements, that's great. And if you don't, could you raise your hand and ushers will come around and give you one. But let's just prepare our hearts right now as we sing this. church. I think this message is in some ways not totally for a lot of us in the sense of this is one of them, got to be one of the most welcoming, loving communities of people I've ever been a part of. I think this in part is for those of you who maybe are new to our church and you, you come maybe from experiences where you've seen the church use its privileged position of being close to God to push people away from God, to cast judgment, to create distance. You don't have the right Bible. You're not dressed the right way. You don't talk the right way, you know, whatever. Oh, you did this, or you have this past, you have this history. And the people of God is a place where the outsiders learn they can become insiders with God. But we have to go through Jesus. The only way to becoming an insider with God is by going through Jesus Christ. And the need that every one of us as human beings have, the need that we have for the forgiveness of our sin, the need that we have to have our lives reconciled and restored to God. Because when we don't live in relationship with God, we bring on ourselves tragedy and wounds of our soul. But there are also, because of the injustice in our world, wounds that have been caused against us. And sometimes it's those wounds that can keep us feeling like we can draw near to God because we feel in those moments of pain abandoned by God. We feel maybe how we were treated by that person is how God views us. But when we come into the church, we come before this hurricane Jesus who offers his blood, who becomes an outsider that we through his sacrifice can be brought near to God. 
that nothing needs to stand between us and the Lord. Listen to this. Uh, we want to offer, have us hold up our little cups. John 3:16. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish and have eternal life. God so loved the world. On the night that Jesus betrayed, his body was broken. And he said, eat this in remembrance of me. Because in my body, I am absorbing in myself the brokenness of your life, the brokenness that you have caused, and the brokenness that you have suffered at the hands of others. And by eating this, you're doing it as an act of faith that Jesus' death sets us free through his forgiveness from bitterness, resentment, and from hurt and the wounds in our hearts. Let's eat this and remember him. And he held up the cup of some of the, I'm, gonna, I'm guessing the best wine anyone ever had. Excellent, excellent, maybe a Merlot, I don't know. And he said, this is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sin. And that blood, that forgiveness cleanses us of the sins that we have committed and the sins that have been committed against us. The injustices that we have committed and the injustices that have been committed against us. Let's drink this in remembrance of him. I want to invite the prayer team to come on up. I got Debbie up here. Got any other prayer warriors? Yeah, I got my, come on, look at these guys. You guys, next week, We'll talk about prayer. I'll finish the story at the bowling alley. But in the meantime, take to heart what it means this week that Jesus became an outsider to bring the outsiders in. Where in your life do you feel like an outsider with God? And if there's any area of your life where you feel outside with God, outside with this church, outside with this community, would you just come up and let us pray for you? Would you let us come up and just minister to you if there's any turbulent moments that you're facing where you need renewed faith? We love you and hope that you feel the love of God for you. Let me pray a blessing over you. I bless you in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. May the Lord bless you and send you out. May I send you out with the freshness of God's good news that the Son of Man, the Son of God, Jesus, crucified, that you might be made right with God and that everything in your life that makes you feel like an outsider, God has made a way for you to be near to God again. And you are as close to God as you want to be. God bless you. Have a great week, my friends. I'll see you next week.